true faith is displayed in good works. That's been a consistent message in the letter of James. Last week we were reminded that those good works should include our words. Our words ought to pour forth a blessing and never a curse. The world of humanity has failed to tame the tongue, but that is no excuse for the Christian. If we have been brought forth by the word of truth, the truth ought to be on our lips, and always ready to pour forth a blessing. In fact, James indicates that those who are able to tame their, tame their tongue not only show forth a genuine faith, but also a mature faith. In our text for this morning, James continues to flesh out the same truth. This week, we focus on the effect of the tongue, the effect of one's speech. Does your speech pour forth the wisdom that is from above or the wisdom that is from below? True faith delights in the wisdom that is from above. We're going to read together chapter 3 once again. We'll focus in on verses 13 through 18. So if you haven't, go ahead and turn to James chapter 3. I'll read the whole chapter for context, and then we'll focus in on verses 13 through 18 to finish out the chapter. James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let us pray. 
Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true. Your word does sanctify us as Jesus prayed. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. There are three points in, for the outline of this short passage. First, the wise display their wisdom through good works. That's verse 13. Second, the wise discard the wisdom of the earth, verses 14 through 16. And finally, the wise delight in the wisdom that is from above, verses 17 through 18. The wise display their wisdom through good works. The wise discard the wisdom of the earth. The wise delight in wisdom that is from above. Let's look at that first point, verse 13 again. The wise display their wisdom through good works. He says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? The repetition of the word wisdom in this short section indicates that James doesn't intend for us to see a great difference between the two words, wisdom and understanding. I believe he's using them synonymously. Who has wisdom and understanding? Who is wise among you? Who has the ability to understand the world and therefore to live rightly in the world? Wisdom is the focus here. James has already referenced wisdom in this letter. Wisdom comes from God as we ask in chapter 1 verses 5 through 8. In the implication in the text is that we ought to ask. Those who have true faith will ask for wisdom, particularly when there are trials and they know they need to respond in faith. They'll ask God for wisdom and they'll ask him in faith for that wisdom. We've discussed the nature of wisdom before. Biblical wisdom is skill for living. It is skill for living well in a world in which God is sovereign. He is ruler. He is king. We are accountable to him. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 and also Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 indicate that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge it's the beginning of wisdom. Those two words are used in parallel. It is the essence of foolishness to reject wisdom and instruction, which leads to knowledge and leads to the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to honor him. It is to have a healthy, fearful respect of him. It is to know that you are accountable to him and to live your life according to that truth. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, another wisdom book in the Bible says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard, is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, Solomon, went through and discussed all of what he learned over the course of his life about the world. All of the worldly wisdom that he'd accumulated, even some of God's wisdom, as he contrasted throughout the wisdom that is from above and the wisdom that is under the sun. And he says, when everything has been said, the end of the matter is this. This is the end of the, mo the wisest person who's ever lived, walked the face of the earth, aside from Jesus, said, this is the end of the matter. This is a summary statement. This is all you need to know when it all boils down to it. Fear God and keep his commandments because everything you do and everything you say is going to be brought into judgment. That's it. If you want to possess biblical wisdom, in other words, 
wisdom that is from God, from above, then it starts with the fear of the Lord. It starts with remembering that you are accountable before God. You have to start there, and then you live a life in light of the fact that you're accountable before God. This is what James has been saying all along. Faith without works is dead. If you say that you know God, if you say that you understand who God is, then you should live like you know God. And James, to know God is to have new life. To have faith is to have new life. It is to be given birth from above, as Jesus taught in John 3. Or as James says in chapter 1, it is to be brought forth by the word of truth. It is on the basis of this new life that faith, true faith, operates. Again, faith without works is dead, James 2.17. If you say you have this true faith but have no good works to show the true faith, then you have a dead faith, a useless faith, a non-existent faith. Again, last week we looked at the preceding section in which James addressed the tongue. Seems clear that James wanted to address the teachers in the congregation to encourage them to take care with how they taught and what they taught, knowing that they would stand before the Lord in judgment. Even teachers are not exempt from that. But of course, his words on the tongue are applicable to all who have faith in Christ. I said at the time that James was not only interested in addressing the nature of true faith, but he was also concerned with addressing mature faith. Those who have a mature faith show the maturity of their faith, not only by taming their tongues, but also by having control over their whole bodies. His point in that section was not to state simple, obvious facts about faith, but to encourage us to live out our faith in a genuine way. The relationship between the previous section and this one should be obvious. Those who have true faith will demonstrate their true faith by their words. The words of those who have true faith ought to clearly communicate the wisdom of God and to encourage living wisely. So when he asks the question again in our text, who is wise and understanding among you, he's not asking them for a verbal response. He's trying to get them to think about the nature of wisdom and how it relates to them living out their faith. Perhaps, again, as some commentators suspect, James is still addressing the teachers in the congregation. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who thinks that they are wise and understanding? Who professes to be wise and understanding? Who is asking for your ear by proclaiming what they believe to be true on the basis of their wisdom and understanding? I could ask you that same question. Who's wise and understanding among you? And by that I mean who has your ear on a daily basis? To whom do you listen? I don't suppose you all go back and re-listen to the Sunday morning sermons throughout the week. And there are not as many people here on Sunday morning as there are on Wednesday evening. So I know I don't particularly have your ear throughout the week. My question is, who does have your ear throughout the week? Who is wise and understanding among you? Talk shows, radio shows, podcasts. News outlets, media coverage of the latest scandal, your favorite politician, actor or actress, athlete, other social media, quote unquote, influencers. Who has your ear throughout the week? To whom do you attribute wisdom and understanding? And to the point of the text, what kind of wisdom and understanding are they communicating to you? It's easy just to listen to what sounds good. It's more difficult to consider if what you are listening to sounds good because it accords with God's wisdom or if it sounds good because it accords with man's wisdom. 
you have to know that there is a difference. Well, how can we tell what the difference is between God's wisdom and man's wisdom? Part of that is, of course, considering the content, but it's also considering the end of their wisdom. It's considering what their wisdom produces. Again, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. We will know those who have wisdom that is from above by their good conduct. And again, good's not a relative term here. It's a term being used in the context of God's word where the wisdom of God is being discussed. Good is a qualifier that refers to God's evaluation of what is good. It is what is good in the sight of the sovereign ruler and king to whom we will give an account. Those who are wise and understanding, those to whom we ought to give our ears are those who show their wisdom and understanding through their good conduct. They show forth good conduct, good works, as he says, in the meekness of wisdom. Jesus said something very similar in Luke chapter 6. says there he told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is out of your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck that is out of your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn brushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is in the heart comes out of the mouth and shows up in the actions, in other words. Wisdom, skill for living is displayed not only in the content of one's word, but much more in the conduct that results from that wisdom. So what is the fruit that is born from the wisdom that you are listening to? And just as in the previous section, James's admonition here should apply not only to those who teach, but to everyone. Every person who professes faith in Christ ought to live by the same rule. They ought to live and speak in a way that demonstrates the good works that God has saved his people to walk in. And in particular, our words ought to be words of wisdom, words that express and words that encourage wise living. I read from Ephesians 4.29 last week. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may, may give grace to those who hear. He says, the only kind of words that should come from your mouth are words that build up and words that give grace, period. There are no exceptions to that. If you're not saying words that build up whoever's hearing and words that give grace to whoever's hearing, keep your mouth closed. That's the point of that verse. I wonder if that describes your words. Again, if you consider yourself wise and understanding, then the words you say out of your mouth ought to always build up and give grace to those who hear. They ought to be words that are conducive to wisdom. You cannot say you're wise and understanding and not show that you're wise and understanding. Again, faith without works is dead. The wise display their wisdom through good works. 
We also see point number two, that the wise discard the wisdom of the earth. That's in verses 14 through 16. Look again at the text. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The but is intended to communicate a strong negative. Be like this, verse 13, but not like that, verses 14 through 16. He's fleshing out, so to speak, a clear contrast between the wisdom of God and its works and the wisdom of the world and its works. The wisdom that is from the world is a self-seeking wisdom. Look again, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the heart are contrasted with the meekness of wisdom. Again, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The wisdom of the world is a self-seeking kind of wisdom. He says bitter jealousy is a part of it. We know what jealousy is, right? The word translated jealousy is defined as intense negative feelings over the achievements or success of another. That's pretty easy to understand. If we're all honest, perhaps we felt jealousy at many different times throughout our lives. Jealousy over a family member who's better than us in X, whatever X is, cooking, sports, Perhaps they're taller, shorter, slimmer, bigger, smarter, more tech-savvy, whatever it is. Perhaps it's jealousy over a coworker who seems to have the boss's attention more than us. Maybe they just do a better job than we do. Maybe they're just better at kissing up than we are. Perhaps as adults, we felt the sting of jealousy when we look over at someone who's more financially well-off than we are, with a nicer house or car, better looking in the world's eyes than we are, better dressed with more friends, again, posting on social media all the fun times and and wild, exciting things that they've enjoyed in life. We see them shining brightly and we become jealous because of what we don't have. We want their life. We become, as the text says, bitter in our jealousy. It sours our mood. It darkens Our thoughts, it colors the way we see everyone and everything. We become suspicious, accusing, even hateful of those who seem to have what we don't have. One of the problems with jealousy is that we simply don't know what that person had to go through to get to where they are now. And for that matter, we don't know what they're going through now. I've shared this very simple illustration from my life and my experience with running as an exercise And I've been on the trail running sometimes, and I've seen people who are perhaps significantly older than me running and passing me. And that makes me feel a certain kind of way, just being honest, you know. But the reality is that I don't know what their training regimen is. I don't know what they're training for. I don't know how they've had to train. I don't know if that accords with the kind of training that I'm doing. I simply don't know. Same thing for people in the gym when they go around and they, you know, you, all these influencers who are posting all these videos about their workouts in the gym and all the things that they have to do to, to stay fit, to stay in shape. Well, I'm not crafting my body to be beautiful in the world's eyes. I just want to make sure my body doesn't fall apart as I get older. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to make sure I, I'm able to serve the Lord for the long term and I'm not, you know, um, <coughs> hobbled by a weak body. 
But that's the thing. We see these things and we don't think about the kind of perhaps foolish things that they have to go through in order to get to where they are. Not only do we not think about what they had to go through when we're jealous, but we also fail to consider what we have when we're jealous of others. When we're looking at what others have and what we do not have, that's really all we see. We're just thinking about what we do not have. When again, the Lord has called us to be thankful and being thankful, part of the exercise of being thankful is what? It's thinking of the things that you have already. Of course, if you focus on what you don't have, you're going to be sad and you're going to be upset. But scripture tells us not to focus on what we don't have. It tells us to focus on and be thankful for what God has done for us, what we do have. And again, if we have Christ, then we have everything. Bitter jealousy is paired with selfish ambition. Not only is the person jealous of what someone else has, thinking only of what they do not have, but there's also a drive within them to pursue what they want for their own benefit. That's selfish ambition. Ambition envisions someone with a drive to achieve something. That's not in and of itself wrong. You could say that Paul was ambitious as an ambassador for Christ. You can say that Adoniram Judson, Judson missionary to Burma was ambitious in his desire to bring the word of God and the gospel to Burma we have a Burmese church that meets in our building as a result of his ambition his godly ambition to take the gospel to Burma ambition in and of itself is not wrong selfish ambition is the problem it's that kind of ambition that seeks only for me And again, for the Christian, our ambitions ought to be first oriented towards Christ and second oriented towards others. That's the design of the New Testament church. We've been saved to walk in good works for the glory of God. We've been saved and gifted to love and serve one another for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's Ephesians 4. We're not to come to church thinking of what we may get from the church service. We're to come to church thinking of what we may give to be a blessing to others. When I think about church, I think, how can I go and be a blessing? What can I do to be a blessing, to be an encouragement to those I see around me? Not just to get fed, not just to sit and soak everything that comes to me. But how can I be a blessing? I mean, Jesus even said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Do we really believe that? The church is not a country club right it's not a sam's club we're not here just for our own benefit the church is intentionally designed to be here for the benefit of and the glory of god but that is the wisdom of the earth it is self-seeking i must do what i must do in order to get mine i have to take care of me first that's the whole lgbtq plus agenda is centered around a desire to affirm me and what I think, and what I want. Society ought to affirm me in whatever I conceive of, whatever I think of myself, however I identify myself, even if it goes against what is natural, against nature, against the science they profess to love, even if it contradicts that science and contradicts what is necessary for a society to continue to thrive. Certainly this worldly way of thinking is not concerned with what some God from an old ancient book has thought up because he's not kept up with the times. He's not evolving with the times. Not about him. It's about me, me, me. 
Again, this kind of thinking has crept into the church. People have to do for me, understand me, affirm me in order for me to be comfortable and feel right about coming to church. The pastor can't say anything that could possibly hurt my feelings or make me feel uncomfortable. That's the unpardonable sin for some people. The church is not about you. This life is not about you. Life is first for the glory of God. The church exists for the glory of God. If you're a Christian, God has saved you for his glory first, to be a blessing to his people second, in that order. Back to James 3.14, those who claim to be wise and understanding, but who have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the heart, he says, are boasting and lying about the truth. They're boasting in themselves, about themselves, and they're lying against the truth of God's word. Back to James again, to the text again, as we move forward, the wisdom of the world is self-seeking, but it's also satanically sourced. Look at verse 15. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earlier, he said that the tongue is set on fire by hell. I said at the time that James could have referenced hell or Gehenna to suggest the coming judgment or also to suggest that the tool, the tongue is a tool of Satan. I still think it could go either way, but verse 15 gives credence to the idea that the tongue is being used as a tool of Satan. He says that this wisdom, this kind of wisdom that is self-seeking, that involves bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this kind of wisdom is not from above, meaning it's not from God, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It is earthly. It is a wisdom, again, not from above, but from below. It's a worldly wisdom. It's earthbound. The nature of the wisdom that is that which pertains to the earth, to the world, without consideration of anything else, without consideration of God, without consideration of the judgment to come. Paul spoke of the world's wisdom in Ephesians chapter 2 when he referenced the course of this world. He said that before Christ, we walked according to the course of this world. The world has a certain way of thinking about life, a certain course, a certain trajectory that it follows in life based on that way of thinking. We tend to refer to this as worldview. Proverbs chapter 1, our scripture reading for this morning, gives us a picture of the world that seeks to entice us to follow. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. In vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain, it takes away the life of its possessors. He describes the course of this world. Those who follow the course of this world, their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. They don't consider the consequences. They don't consider the cost. They're only seeking that which will please them and that which they think will benefit them. Remember, a Proverbs as we think a little bit more about this, is 
the perspective of a father trying to teach his son how to live wisely, to live skillfully in a world in which God is sovereign ruler. He warns his son very early on that the world is not simply dangerous because of its message. It does have a dangerous message, but it's also dangerous because the world is actively seeking to draw you into its worldview. It's enticing you to follow. And that's part of the problem. And the enticements of the world are attractive. Again, even in this passage in Proverbs, there's a promise of gain. We shall find all precious goods. I think we do ourselves a disfavor sometimes when we paint all sin as if it is dirty, a dirty, filthy garment from which we would naturally shrink away. Well, that's just not true. All sin is not always ugly. It's not always filthy. Sometimes the most dangerous sin is beautiful. It, what, did, what did it say in the text when Eve was looking at the fruit? It was good for food. It looked tasty. It was desirable to make one wise. What she saw was not something ugly. She saw something beautiful. And that's how the world entices us. It doesn't hold up a picture of an ugly demon before us. That ugly demon appears as an angel of light to draw us in to that which is beautiful. I think this is where we fall, fell short as we talk about sin so often. And that's a caricature of Christianity that the world has, that we're always calling out sin and we're always humdrum about sin and blah, 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 sin. And, and what the world sees is they see that angel of light and they're thinking, what are you talking about? This is good. This feels good. So we have to be clear with the message of sin. Yes, sin is wrong. It does dishonor God. It is dangerous and it is wicked. And part of the danger, just like Solomon, as we're talking to our children, as we're talking to ourselves, part of the danger is that it appears to be good. And it may even feel good. But in the end, it's not going to be good for you. They're not thinking about the consequences. They're just thinking about gratification in the moment. Paul says that their God is their belly. They don't serve the true and living God. Their God is their appetite, the pleasures that it will afford them. Paul says in Ephesians 2, they lived in the passions of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Whatever the flesh thinks of, conceives of whatever the mind conceives of they indulge in that without respect to anything else without thought of anything else those are the enticements of the world the enticements of sin that's why we have to be careful the wisdom from below is earthly it's also unspiritual I don't think there's anything mystical about this his point is that it doesn't involve the spirit of God it's humanly wisdom fleshly wisdom not guided by the spirit of God humanly wisdom can't even understand the spirit of God Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned it's unspiritual it is without the spirit of God it is humanly fleshly Moreover, it's demonic. The wisdom of the world is demon-inspired. The people of the world, again, probably think that they're highly enlightened as they pursue their moral relativism, their liberalism and the like. They probably think they've uncovered this previously hidden secret knowledge and that now that it is out, it will set the captives of our society free. 
remove the inhibitions that have long hampered progress and usher us into a better society, a freer society, while all the while the wisdom that they pursued and that they're now enjoying and championing, championing, championing is a wisdom of demons. In the same passage of Ephesians 2, again, Paul says that apart from Christ, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is understood to be a reference to Satan and his activities among the unbelieving. He says we walk according to his power, his will. John said it this way in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That is the nature of this wisdom, the wisdom of the world that is self-seeking. What don't I have that someone else does? What do I want, regardless of what it costs? It is satanically sourced. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The wisdom of the world is sin-stimulating. It creates sin. It encourages sin. Again, the problem with wisdom is not only its content, but also its conduct. What is the fruit of wisdom? It increases sin among those who indulge in it. I think this is perhaps James's greatest concern for the community, the level of disorder and ungodliness that follow the world's wisdom. When we come back to chapter 4, James is going to lean in on this idea a lot more. He's going to ask them, where do quarrels and fights come from among you? And he's going to say, you're being influenced more by the world's wisdom than the wisdom that is from the above. That is a problem. Your passions, you're trying to be more of a friend to the world than you are a friend of God. But again, this kind of wisdom, this worldly wisdom stimulates sin, increases sin. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. There will be disorder from worldly wisdom. James has used this word before. In chapter 1, verse 8, he referenced those who are unstable because they're double-minded, saying that they believe God, but not actually believing his ability to give aid to those who ask. Also, chapter 3, verse 8, where he called the tongue a restless evil. The tongue is restless, unstable, constantly going about spreading evil. And again, here, the result of that double-minded man who claims to have faith but doesn't, the result of that tongue that is a restless evil full of deadly poison, the effect of that deadly poison is further restlessness, further disorder in the community. Disorder is just what it sounds. Things are out of order. What should be known as good will be spoken of as evil. What should be known as evil will be spoken of as good. What should be known as natural will be thought of as unnatural and vice versa. There will be disorder. We see that even in our society today. Almost complete chaos, even to the degree that parents are being viewed suspiciously by the state nowadays. They're being viewed suspiciously, particularly if they fail to affirm a child's gender identity. I don't know if you've heard about this, but Dr. Al Mohler mentioned in an episode on the briefing from this past Monday, September 11th, he referenced a bill that was introduced to the California State Assembly that would add additional parameters to give the government the ability to remove a child from their parents if the court decided to do so. Some of the verbiage of the bill was as follows, quote, existing law governs the determination of child custody and visitation in contested proceedings 
and requires the court for purposes of deciding custody to determine the best interest of the child based upon certain factors, including, among other things, the health, safety, and welfare of the child. And that's pretty standard language. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. However, the bill goes on to add this, quote, this bill for the purposes of this provision would include a parent's affirmation of the child's gender identity or gender expression as a part of the health, safety, and welfare of the child. Do you get what's happening there? The California State Assembly wants to add a provision that would consider a parent's affirmation of the child's perceived gender identity if they're confused or if they just have this thought about it the parent has to affirm it and if they don't they could be held liable in court and potentially have their child taken away this is a bill being proposed to the California State Assembly and you can rest assured if it's passed there it will not stop at California this is the way the world is going we've already heard many stories in schools, even among children as young as elementary, actively pushing the LGBTQ agenda, actively teaching on gender and encouraging children, again, who may simply be confused or curious, encouraging them to be different. And the school's teachers are being told not to tell parents if the child, quote, identifies as being different. So you wouldn't even know if your child goes to school and decides to dress up as a different gender or be called by a different pronoun. In the wisdom of the world, parents are being pushed to the sidelines in the lives of their children. Parents used to be looked upon to raise their children in the way they should go, to guide their children. Now parents are being told to leave their children alone or the state will take them. Let the child figure out life for themselves. Disorder will continue to follow and flourish in accord with the wisdom of the world. This is just one example. Back to the text again, the wisdom of the world is sin stimulating and increases sin among those who indulge. It creates disorder. It creates chaos. And James says at the end of that verse, it leads to every vile practice, every conceivable, conceivable form of wickedness. Every evil deed will result from pursuing wisdom that is from the earth. It is a slippery slope. Again, this is one of the reasons why believers ought to flee from immorality. We're not told to, you know, fight against it. We're not told to rebuke it in, in Jesus' name. We're told flee immorality. We may think we can dabble a little and not have any trouble, but it will always lead to more. Someone said sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you were willing to pay. I mean, consider the world. If there's an L, there must be a B and a G and a T, right? If there's an LGBT, there must be a Q and a plus sign, which means anything else. Those who are questioning gender would say that they're not just two options. There are three options, but they're not just three options. There is an unknown possibility of genders. None of it will stop. The quest to indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind, there's no end. Whatever your mind can conceive of, whatever your flesh desires, there's no end to that. That's the wisdom of the world. Paul indicates in Romans chapter 1 that this is, in fact, a part of the judgment of God upon the world. He says, those who should know God, those who are without excuse because God has shown 
to them his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And you see the progression there. They should know God, but they chose to ignore God, to suppress the truth of who God is in unrighteousness. And they didn't honor him or give thanks. And then they became futile in their thinking, empty in their thinking, and their hearts became dark as a result. Claiming to be wise, he says, they became fools. And so not acknowledging God for who he is, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and beasts and animals and creeping things. They started to make God in their own image. And he says in verse 24, therefore, because they have rejected him, God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. For verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In our Wednesday evening Bible study, we're talking about how to study the Bible, and one of the things that we look for is repeated words and phrases. This phrase is being repeated multiple times in this text. God gave them up. God gave them over. Again, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for that which are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parent, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the effect of the wisdom of the world, disorder in every vile practice. This is why we, beloved, must guard ourselves against falling to the wisdom of the world. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. The hatred of evil is not a visceral reaction to those things that are evil. You may have that but it's more than simply a visceral or emotional response to the evil you see. Those who fear the Lord will reject evil. That's the idea of hatred here. Jacob, I loved Esau, I've hated it, says in Romans chapter 9. The text is not referring to an emotional response that God had to Esau. The point is that God chose Jacob and he rejected Esau. And so the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. We should hate things that are evil. What's more important than an emotional response to the things that are evil to a response of outrage, of moral indignation, is to reject things that are evil. We ought to be the first ones not just to call out evil, but to turn away from it, to reject it as that which is undesirable for us as the children of God. Paul says this in Colossians 2, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. In him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you've been made full. We have everything we need in Christ. Don't let anyone take you away from that. Jude, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause division, worldly people devoid of the spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Guard yourselves against the wisdom of the world, beloved. Keep yourself in the truth. Those who claim to know the Lord, to fear the Lord, to walk in his wisdom with his understanding must reject the wisdom of the world. More than that, we must be careful to guard ourselves against falling to the world's wisdom and instead embrace the wisdom of God. And that's our final point. Again, point number one, the wise display their wisdom through good works. Number two, the wise discard the wisdom of the earth. And number three, the wise delight in the wisdom that is from above. Verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Just as he did with wisdom that is from below, we see the origin, operation, and outcome of the wisdom that is from above. We are to delight in wisdom that is, quote, from above. This is the origin of God's wisdom. It's not of the earth. It's not demonic. Again, James is drawing a sharp sharp contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom that God grants through his word. This is why we're told in James chapter 1, verse 21, to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We're brought forth by the word of truth. We're given wisdom of God through the word. We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I asked a similar question earlier, but how much time do you spend listening to the word? I asked earlier, who has your ear during the week? Does the Lord have your ear during the week? Are you filling yourself with his wisdom during the week, his truth? wisdom is pictured in Proverbs 1 as calling out in the streets calling out in the marketplace the wisdom of God is calling out from his word how often do you avail yourself of it moving on the wisdom of God is from above therefore its content and conduct will be different from the world well how does this wisdom operate he says the wisdom from above is first pure this calls to mind what James said at the end of chapter one that pure religion in the sight of our God and father is that which keeps itself unstained from the world again we're to reject the wisdom of the world so that we can keep ourselves pure not mixed in with the ways of the world nor given over to the ways of the world pure undivided without defect sanctified set apart for the Lord that's what God's wisdom does it's peaceable The wisdom of God is oriented towards peace. It seeks to make peace. It creates peace in the heart. The wisdom of the earth stokes the double-minded, the restless, evil tongue, disorder and chaos. But the wisdom of God is peaceable. It is gentle. Selfish ambition does not care for the effect of its deeds on others. Selfish ambition only seeks its own good. The wisdom of God promotes that which is gentle toward others, caring. And listen, even gentle when wrong. One author says this, true wisdom is gentle. This quality, quote, describes the kind of person who, though wronged or possessing the right not to bend, 
nevertheless forgoes his right. Us American Christians, we're always talking about our rights. Your rights have nothing to do with the word of God. Your rights as an American to do whatever Americans do, do not supersede your calling in Christ. The wisdom from above is open to reason. The idea with this word is to convey that one is accommodating, easy to work with. When there's a conflict, they don't turn their head away. They're not cold toward the other person. They're reasonable, accommodating, eager to work with one another. They're full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy and good fruits are continually a theme in James, and he doesn't miss the opportunity to tie these two to wisdom. To be merciful is to withhold that which is deserved, to not give someone according to what you believe they deserved. Instead, you seek to do good to them. This is mercy triumphing over judgment. This is the heart of the one who visits orphans and widows in their affliction. This is the heart of the one who sees a poor man entering the congregation who doesn't push him aside or try to humiliate him, but seeks to honor the poor man and seeks to meet their needs. This is the one who tames their tongue and only speaks what will give grace to those who hear. The merciful seek to do good even when offended as an indication of wisdom. He says they are impartial and sincere. The word impartial recalls James' discussion about those who would show partiality. We should show no partiality, but instead treat each one with the same love and respect as another. And we ought to do so sincerely from the heart with no duplicity. We're not to say one thing with our mouths and think another in our heart or say another thing behind the backs of the other person. This is how the wisdom of God operates. These are the character qualities of the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is evidence of the work of the spirit of God in the life of the believer. Again, true faith, true born again faith works because God is at work to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2. And what is the outcome of this wisdom? Verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, I think that the biggest problem for James with the world's wisdom is the effect it has on the community, the disorder and the vile practices it creates among the body. To the contrary, the wisdom that is from above will yield a harvest of righteousness. He's using this agricultural term to describe the produce of the wisdom of God. This is what it will produce. This is the effect, the outcome of God's wisdom as opposed to the wisdom of the world. There will be a harvest of righteousness. And that harvest of righteousness comes as a result of those of you in a community who are sowing peace. And the ones who are able to sow peace are those who have the wisdom that comes from above because the wisdom that comes from above is peaceable. In other words, the people you should be listening to, the ones you should be following, the ones you should be emulating, whose example you should be pursuing are those who seek to make peace in the body of Christ. Because you sow seeds of peace you will yield a harvest of righteousness. We read at the end of Proverbs 1, whoever listens to me, this is wisdom calling out in the street, will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. That's peace. One author said this, in contrast to the disorder and evil that result from selfish ambition, James says in verse 18 that the wisdom from God results in peace and righteousness. God's wisdom produces that which is right, that which is pleasing and honoring to God, that which is good for the people of God. He says, think about how the peace James talks about plays out in your home. 
when a husband and wife are humbly going before God and pursuing wisdom that is pure and honoring to God, it produces peace in the home. This also happens in the church. When men and women are humbly going before God, leaving self-centered ambition behind and pursuing wisdom that is pure, it produces peacemaking and righteousness in that church. It doesn't mean you always agree on every single detail. It does mean that together we are humbly seeking God's wisdom and putting aside selfish ambition. We need to ask God to remove from us worldly thinking and worldly wisdom. Humble yourself before God. Ask him to give you wisdom that is first pure, peaceable, loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits without favoritism and hypocrisy. And pray that he would use you to sow not disorder and evil, but to harvest peace and righteousness in your relationships with others, end quote. Ultimately, what the Lord desires for his people within the body of Christ is that they be a people of peace and at peace. Peace cannot be had among people who are distressed and broken due to trials, failing to care for the weak and vulnerable, showing partiality or speaking to one another in a way that tears down and doesn't build up. All of that comes from following a wisdom that is from the earth. But again, our God desires for his people to be at peace. This is what Christ died for. James will use the reality of this truth again in chapter 4 to address the fights and quarrels among them. The people of God must be a people of peace. In order to accomplish this, the Lord provides them with his wisdom through his word. He provides them with skill for living this life well with one another. He pours out his wisdom particularly upon those who ask. As it says in chapter 1. Perhaps you find yourself drifting more to the world's wisdom than to the Lord's. It's never too late to repent to turn away from that foolishness, to work on guarding yourself against the influences of the world while also embracing the wisdom of God. Build yourselves up in the faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God and pray, beloved. Pray for yourself. Pray for our congregation. Pray that God would grant us his wisdom, that we would be kept from the wisdom of the world, that we would embrace the wisdom of God, both for his glory and for our collective good. Make that a consistent prayer for our church. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. We thank you for Jesus, who through his sacrifice has made us a part of your kingdom and who through his continual work as our good shepherd, as our great high priest, He continues to keep us. He is, as our last hymn will say, our sure and steady anchor. Father, help us always to turn our attention, our focus, to set our hearts on him so that we may walk in your wisdom, so that we may be a blessing to one another, so that the gospel may go forth all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.